I went back and looked at the last time I did Q&A here, and I spoke for 45 minutes. I normally try to go for 30, and so we're going to uh, keep it to 10 questions tonight. All right, several questions. Last week, I posted online, and I said, if you've got questions for Q&A, let me know. And boy, that was a mistake. I got loaded with questions. I probably have 30 or 40 questions. So if you don't hear your question tonight, uh, we will do it next time. All right, question number one is this. Is it okay to pray really long prayers? I sometimes feel that I'm asking too much in a prayer, and so then I hurry and I rush through it. You know, in Matthew 23 and verse 14, the Lord says about the Pharisees and the scribes, he says they were hypocrites. And one of the reasons that he gives is he said for a pretense, they make long prayers. I went back and I looked up this word pretense, and it is a very interesting word. It is the Greek word that means to cause to shine. Think about that. For a pretense, they wanted to make themselves shine. The idea is they were praying long prayers because they wanted to look holy. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5, Jesus said, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Assuredly, I say unto you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your house, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now listen to verse 7. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard in their many words. Now, what's the point of that? A person could be praying for pretense to make a show so that people will look at them and say, Wow, they, they're, they're holy. Did you hear how long they prayed? Did you hear their fancy words that they use? They think they're going to be heard because of their many words. So there's a warning against long prayers if it's done with the wrong motive. That is, you're doing it to make yourself look good. Or if it's vain repetitions. Vain means empty. You just say the same thing over and over and you think that God's going to hear you because you're talking a lot. All right. What about the length of prayers, biblically speaking? The length of prayers in the Bible varies greatly. The model prayer that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 6, I timed it. You can say that prayer in less than 30 seconds. Nehemiah, when he stood before King Artaxerxes, the king asked him, what would you ask of me, Artaxerxes? And he said, and I prayed to God, and I answered the king. I don't think he got on his knees. I don't think it was an audible prayer. It probably was something like this, Lord, please give me wisdom. Then he answered the king. He didn't close his eyes. It was a super, super fast prayer, probably two or three seconds in length. The length of prayers in the Bible varies greatly. There are times when prayers lasted a long time. You remember the night of Jesus' crucifixion, he spent the majority of the night in prayer. You remember that when Peter was in prison, the church in Jerusalem prayed a long time on behalf of Peter. And so the length of my prayer is going to vary based on what's going on in my life. It's going to vary based on my blessings and my bruises, my triumphs and my temptations. But throughout life, I've got to be praying. You know, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without 
ceasing. Acts 2.42 says the early church continues steadfastly in prayer. You know, we sing the song sometimes, pray in the morning, pray in the evening, pray in the noontime, pray all the time. Now, what's the point? The Christian life ought to be one where you're just always praying. You know, I used to think about 1 Thessalonians 5.17. What does that mean to pray without ceasing? Does that? And I used to say, that doesn't mean that you just start a prayer and you never end it. And over the years, I've started to think, maybe that is what it means. That is, throughout the day, I'm speaking to God. Throughout the day, I'm saying, Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, give me strength. It's just an ongoing prayer that is a part of my life. Now, I do think that people sometimes will get up in a public prayer, and they don't use good judgment. It seems like they're trying to get caught up on their prayer life, and that's not a good thing to do either. So some judgment is involved in this. Okay, question number two. Is it a sin to eat in the church building? Is it right to spend church funds on social gatherings when the church's mission is saving souls? First, it is not a sin to eat in the church building. The passage that I most frequently hear people go to to make this point is 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 22, where Paul said to the Corinth Church of Christ, What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and to drink? Now, the context, and they'll say, see, you're not supposed to eat in the building. He said, you've got homes to do that. If you look at the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the context is they had taken the Lord's Supper, which was supposed to be holy, which was supposed to be about the death of Christ, and they had just made it a common meal. Instead of thinking about the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, they were just chowing down. And the Lord says, Paul says to them, the Lord says through Paul, he says, you got houses in which you can do that. You don't have to come together in a worship environment to do that sort of thing. In other words, that's not the point of you coming together. Now, we should keep in mind that in the first century, they didn't have church buildings. We should keep in mind that in the first century, they met in people's homes very frequently. And so it wasn't wrong to eat in the church building because the church building was their home. The building wasn't holy. The building today is not holy. Now, question two, is it right to spend church funds on social gatherings when the church's mission is to seek and save the lost, to seek and save souls? First, I think the question um, maybe is a little bit biased in that it says, is it right to spend the church money on social gatherings? Because it seems to paint a certain picture or the, um, the understanding of the person asking the question. Christians being together is much more than just a fun social gathering. It's much more than just a hoopla and having fun. Christians being together strengthens them. It makes them grow. It makes us more faithful. We need to be together as the church more than just when we're, we've come together to worship. Secondly, it is true that the mission of the church is to seek souls. Luke 19.10, the Lord said that the mission of the church is to seek and save the lost. But that's not the only mission of the church. There are three responsibilities or three objectives of the church. The first one, of course, is evangelism, Luke 19.10. Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. He's the head. As his body, we have the same mission. The second mission of the church is that of benevolence. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, 
We use it frequently when we partake of the Lord, when we um, uh, have the giving on the Lord's day. The collection that they were taking up specifically was designated as benevolence. They said, we're taking this up in worship, but it is to help people in need. That's one of the works of the church. The third work of the church is edification. Now, what does that mean? It means one of the works of the church is to strengthen people who are already Christians. Now, how are we going to do that? One of the ways we do that is by being together. We're together in our homes We're together outside of the congregation. We're together uh, sometimes if we're going to have the whole congregation together. You can't do it in somebody's home because the size of congregation. Even us, we're, we're a relatively small congregation. But if we said, whose home can we meet in to accommodate all of us, it would be challenging. Third, is it right to spend the money of the church on a fellowship meal? I'd ask a couple of questions. Number one... Does spending money on a fellowship meal fall into the category of evangelism, benevolence, or edification? If it falls into one of those three categories, then it is a proper thing to do. The second question is this. Are there examples of the first century church spending money or doing this sort of thing? And if there is such examples, then it's a proper thing to do. So did the first century church meet and eat together. Now remember, first century church met where? They met in homes. You see numerous examples of that. Romans 16, 3 through 5, 1 Corinthians 16, 19, Colossians 4, 15, Philemon uh, verses 1 and 2, and numerous others. It was typical that they met in somebody's house. They also prepared and consumed meals when they were together in those structures. But listen how the Lord describes this. Acts 2.46 says, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, decades later, when it got to the point that the numbers could no longer meet in somebody's house, and they started building a larger structure where they could meet together, are we to assume that they could no longer eat and break bread from house to house? that they were doing this, and God approved it. God said, this is great. They were breaking bread from house to house. They had singleness of mind. But now that they're not meeting in a house, but they're in a church building, they can't do this anymore. Only 50% of the things they were doing in a house can be carried out now that they're together. That doesn't follow to me. Why could they meet and eat together in homes with God's approval, but when they moved to a larger structure, they couldn't, couldn't do that? Remember again what's mentioned in Acts 2.46? It has spiritual implications. It is more than a social gathering. It is complimented by God for the things they'd done. How can we say it's sinful? God complimented this. Now, a third aspect of this question comes down to judgment. Because some people will say, well, in my judgment, uh, you know, I don't, I don't buy the 1 Corinthians 11 argument and you know, you don't have homes into which... I've heard some people say, I I don't buy that. But they would say, in my judgment, I feel like we should not spend money on a kitchen. We should not spend money on food. I don't believe that that is a good way to spend the Lord's money. Remember Acts chapter 2? Immediately after the church is established, the Lord compliments Christians and says, breaking bread from house to house, 
They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people in the Lord. He says, uh, added to the church daily, those who are being saved. If you have ever spent time gathered around a table, fellowshipping with Christians, you know that it is much more than just a social gathering. It promotes love. It promotes camaraderie. You get to the point that you understand each other better. You open up to one another. You start to talk about spiritual things. You begin to further talk about ideas of the church, and you'll say, you know, I was thinking about this. You ask questions, you'll say, well, what about this? They talk about things like things they've encountered at work and uh, things that it opens the door for more mature Christians to talk about things that probably aren't going to arise when they're walking out the door after the amen. And so they spend time together. That's why the Lord speaks of this in such a positive light. Christians need to be together. Fellowship meals have to do with fellowship. It has to do with edification. Now, people will say, yeah, but in my judgment, a kitchen or a fellowship hall is just a luxury. And so I don't think we should spend money that way. There are other ways to accomplish this. You know, I expect that in the first century, the Christians who met in houses and who met in caves, do you think they might look at our building and say, and that's a luxury. We don't have the fanciest building by any stretch of the imagination. Could you see somebody saying, whew, boy, y'all spent that much money on that building? I expect that there are brethren in other parts of the world who would look and say, y'all spent money on air conditioning? You spent money on water fountains? You spent money on PowerPoint? You know, I have been in numerous congregations in Africa and India, and they would find the fact that we have the restroom facilities. I hear people complain, our restroom facilities are inadequate. They would say, those restroom facilities are a luxury. Are we therefore sinning because we've got toilets indoors? You know what a toilet costs? You know what dividers cost? You see, there is judgment that comes into play in these things. And so, no, my personal judgment is not a determination of what is right or what is wrong. All right, next. I spent too much time on that question, but it's a good question. Next, if a man or woman has an unscriptural divorce but remarries anyway and has children in that second marriage, can they still be right with God and go to heaven? Divorce seems like it would be a sin, and it would cause confusion, especially if children are involved. Now, this one was sent to me. It's not by a member here. This was sent to me by someone outside of this congregation. If a person, is, if a person has an unscriptural divorce, that means they got a divorce not for fornication. Can they remarry with God's approval? They cannot do that. What if they do it anyway? They are living in a sinful relationship. Now, the question is, can they be right with God? Of course they can. But to be right with God, it's going to involve repenting. It's going to involve stopping that sin. It's going to involve ceasing to live in that unscriptural marriage. In Matthew 19 and verse 9, the Bible says that when a person enters into a, an unscriptural marriage, they are committing adultery. That is an ongoing action. That is something that he is continuing to do. And so to repent of it, he's got to stop it. Think about, a, think about a homosexual couple. 
What if a two men, they decide they want to get married, and at some point down the line, they learn the truth and they want to become Christians? Could they just say, you know, we're going to repent and we'll just stay together because we repented and everything's okay now? Of course not. We would say an unscriptural relationship, a marriage that doesn't meet God's approval, in order to fix it, you've got to stop it. And the same thing is true for heterosexual marriage that God doesn't approve. Now, the question that frequently is thrown out to me is, but what if they have children? What if this man and woman get married, they've been married for years, they learn the truth, and they've got children? Does that make it more complicated? It's certainly more difficult. It certainly pulls at the heartstrings. She says in this question, it seems like it would be a sin. It seems like it would be a sin. See, we need to see what the Bible says, not what it seems like. She said it would be confusing to the children to do this. The scripture reading tonight was from Ezra chapter 10. In the Old Testament, God forbid, forbade his children to marry heathen people. He said, if you do that, you have entered into an unscriptural marriage. He did it anyway. So Ezra gets up and he says, you have married these people contrary to the law of God. Ezra chapter 9 and verse 2 He said, you're living in this marriage without God's approval. And so in Ezra 10, and verse 10 is a good way to remember it if you need to remember. What's that Old Testament verse? Ezra 10, 10. Ezra commanded the people, separate from these unscriptural marriages. Apparently there were lots of the people who had entered into these unscriptural marriages. You think they had kids? You think any of them had kids? Of course some of them had kids. But the Lord said, This is what you got to do in order to make it right. The kids complicate it, but it's a consequence of disobedience. Oftentimes when people sin, it gets complicated. The more you sin, the more complicated it gets. We can't say to God, Lord, we've made it extremely complicated, therefore we'll just stay like this and you'll be okay with it. That's not how the law of God works. Okay, here's the next one. Number four, in Acts chapter 8, the text says that both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and he baptized him. Is it okay for a baptism to take place if the person doing the baptism is not also in the water? This question came from someone in another state, and they sent it to me because they had seen online that we had posted pictures of baptisms, and they noticed that we have a baptistry in which the one doing the baptizing doesn't have to be in the water. Um, That is actually very nice. In fact, I'm thinking it could be that I might be able to baptize someone in that. And that's exciting to me. I haven't baptized anyone in four years. So that was, is exciting to think that I would do that or I could do that. The question is, in the Bible, you see that Philip and the eunuch went down both into the water, but we're doing it where they're not both in the water. Here's the answer. In the New Testament, there is never emphasis placed on the one doing the baptism. In Romans chapter 6, the Bible says that the one who is baptized must be buried with Christ in baptism. The word baptized means to be immersed. It's obvious why Philip and the eunuch went down both into the water. Can you imagine he's teaching him and they're in this chariot and they come along and uh, here is a pond. Here is a lake, 
But Philip says, now you've got to be immersed, but I'm going to stay outside of the pond. Just run that through your mind. Could, can you envision, envision how he would do that? Imagine a baptism at a beach. Imagine trying to baptize somebody at the beach, and you've got to immerse them, but you're not going to get into the water. I don't know how you would do it. It's obvious why they went down into the water, and that is because the Lord is telling us that immersion is part of this, and he specifies that. If we said the person who goes down into the one who's doing the baptizing, the, the baptizer, has to be in the water, uh, how, how far? If, if his feet are in the water, is that enough? Is, is it knee level? Is it chest level? Does it have to be immersion like the one? And the, and the answer is we don't have any idea because the Bible just doesn't give us any guidance on, on that fact. This is actually very convenient, and it meets all of the qualifications that the Bible sets forth about a person who is uh, being baptized scripturally. Okay, number five. I'm not going to make ten, am I? <laughs> Number five, what does 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 3 mean when it says that Christians will judge angels? I don't have the foggiest idea. (laughs) If you read different commentaries and you read what different brethren have to say about this, it's obvious to me that nobody really knows. There's a wide range of ideas. Um, Nobody really knows the answer to this. The Bible simply tells us we're going to do this, but he doesn't tell us how we're going to judge angels. He simply says that we're going to do it. Now, I would assume that this would be the fallen angels of 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. I'm assuming that this is those referred to in Matthew 25 and verse 41, where the Bible speaks of the devil and his angels, because the righteous angels, that they don't need to be judged because they're righteous angels. But the thing that confuses me about it is the wicked angels, if you read the text, it seems like they've already been judged because Peter says, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus. Matthew refers to hell as the place prepared for the devil and his angels. So it seems to me like they have already been judged. I have wondered, maybe the word judge here refers to us judging angels in the sense that if we are righteous, our behavior stands in contrast to condemn them. That is, the wicked angels, they were wicked, we are faithful, and so our very behavior, our very actions condemn them or judge them. The word here is crino. Now, it could mean that when the Lord pronounces his judgment, that we as the faithful will stand in agreement. And we will say, yes, yes, Lord, that's right. It might mean that. That's my two best educated guesses on that. Number six, if a non-Christian were to win the lottery, he's a non-Christian, $50 million, for example, I'm glad they specified the amount, and then sometime thereafter he obeys the gospel, what should be done with the money that he won from the lottery? I think he should give it to the elders. So, um, Or GBN would be good. Um, no, I'm kidding, but this is a very interesting question. Legally, as far as the laws of the land go, it's his money. Now, the lottery or gambling is taking money from other people through an immoral activity. But 
what does a Christian do to fix sin? He's, he's going to make restitution. But you know, there are some things for which you can't make restitution. If you kill somebody, how are you going to fix that? If you won $50 million before you became a Christian, this money, who did this money come from? Thousands of people, millions of people who contributed. How are you going to give it back to them? I have no idea. Now, repentance demands restitution. And so um, I think that what he ought to do is this. He ought to take that money which belonged to the devil and try to use it for the glory of God. Because what else can he do? I know a man who is a member of the church. Years ago, he found some money, a lot of money, and he kept it. Years later, it was eating at him, and he decided he wanted to make it right. He had no idea who this money belonged to, but after all these years, he had a general idea what the amount was. And so what he decided to do was he said, I'm going to give it to the church because he didn't know what else to do. He didn't feel good about keeping it. He wanted to make restitution the best that he could. He didn't know any other way to do it, and so he gave that amount to the church. And I think that was probably um, a good solution to that. All right, number seven. Where does the Bible say that men should not go shirtless? Wasn't Jesus shirtless when he was washing his disciples' feet? Where does the Bible say that men should not run around without the shirt on? In Genesis chapter 2, when Adam and Eve were, when, when they sinned and they realized that they were naked, the Bible says that they made themselves loin coverings. That word is a word that means basically like a bathing suit, that shorts that a man would wear. He's wearing shorts, and he is not covered uh, from the, the chest up. When the Lord came into the garden and saw them covered in loin coverings, the Bible says the Lord told them they were naked, and the Lord made them tunics. This is a Hebrew word that carries with it the idea of a robe, and the description is the Lord made them a garment that covered them from the shoulder to the knee, and the Bible says, and he clothed them. The implication is apparently they were not clothed with the loin covering. And so right in the very beginning when they learned that they are naked, I think we have the principle that's laid down. There's some other passages that we could go to, but I'll save those uh, for later when I've got a little more time. You know, a man going shirtless obviously is not the same as a woman going shirtless. There is a different uh, matter of degree but you know, many women find it stimulating to see a man without his shirt on. There is a British healthcare company that did a recent survey of 3,000 women, and they asked women, what do you find most physically attractive in the male body? Number one was the chest. Number two was the hair. And number three was the arms. So if you think about that, these women said, this is what stimulates us. This is the biggest stumbling block to us. That alone ought to tell a man, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a stumbling block to others. Now, principles of modesty apply to men and they apply to women. Over the years when I preached on modesty, usually somebody who doesn't like it, they will come up to me um, and they will say something like this. It's usually a female, and she gets angry, and she says, why are you directing this discussion only to the women? Don't men have to be modest too? 
Of course. Of course men have to be modest. So why are you addressing this only to the women? And the answer is this. Every verse in the Bible that talks about dressing modestly is directed at women. And every verse in the Bible that refers to lusting or not to lust physically is addressed to men. Now, does that mean that men don't have to dress modestly? Of course not. Does it mean that women can lust? Of course not. Then why did God choose to do it that way? Why did He choose to state it that way? Because God made us, and God knows how our minds operate. And He knows that this lusting is a bigger problem for men than it is for women. God knows, and He laid it out that way. All right, here is the next one. Can a mature, knowledgeable Christian be guilty of sins of ignorance. And I talked to the person who sent this in, and I asked for clarification. And the person said, you know, you've talked about sins of ignorance and that if we walk in the light, the Lord forgives those. But if a person's a knowledgeable Christian, it seems like, you know, a mature Christian, you shouldn't be going around committing sins of ignorance. So if a, or can a mature, knowledgeable Christian be guilty of sins of ignorance, please give examples. I would say, of course, a knowledgeable Christian can be guilty of sins of ignorance. I suppose to say that he couldn't would be to suggest that there's nothing he could be ignorant of. Now, admittedly, after a man's been a Christian for many years, he should have a pretty good grasp on the basics. He ought to understand modesty, and he ought to understand drinking, and he ought to understand fornication. Psalm 19 and verse 2, David said, who can understand his sins? Cleanse me, Lord, from my secret faults. I, the, the word secret there means sins of ignorance. I would argue that David was a man of great spiritual maturity, and yet he said he committed sins of ignorance. Now, the person said give examples. I would suggest pride. Maybe there's a spiritual person, and yet pride, pride starts creeping into their life. They're not aware of it. Maybe greed. Maybe prejudice immediately. Josh mentioned in one of his lessons recently, Galatians chapter 2, here's the apostle Peter, and he got caught up in prejudice. Would you say Peter was spiritually mature? Yeah, but he still had problems. Uh, maybe I've passed up opportunities to talk to other people about the gospel, and the Lord is holding me accountable. I suspect until I die, there will be sins of ignorance. But aren't you thankful that as we're walking in the light and doing our best that we can be cleansed of these things? I don't know how long I have been um, talking. I didn't track it, but I'm going to answer one more. If I go 45 minutes, please, um, please forgive me. It'll be a sin of ignorance. So number nine, is there anything unscriptural about a woman baptizing someone? I know that all of the examples in the Bible are men. Well, when I read that, is there anything wrong with a woman baptizing someone? My very first thought was, every example in the Bible is a man. So I would conclude from that, that this is something that relates to a leadership position. Therefore, God designates the male. You know, I think about worship. If a Christian man is present, then he is to lead the prayers. If a Christian man is present, he is to do the preaching. He is, in fact, all the acts of worship are to be led by men. But what if you have a congregation that's all women? I, I knew of one in West Virginia. It was all women. In fact, there's one like that in Cookville that's all women. Now, they will bring a man in, 
in order to have him preach. But what if they had a Sunday where there are no men present? Could that woman speak that day? Sure, I don't see what she's not usurping authority over the man. Could she preside over the Lord's table? Of course, she's not usurping authority over the man. If someone wanted to be baptized, could she baptize them? There's not a Christian man present. And so I would argue, just like we see with regard to acts of worship, if a man is present, he is to take the leadership role. If a man is not present, then a woman could do this. And I would say, just like in worship, I would apply the same thing with regard to baptism. Now, if I ended up being baptized by a woman because... if Let's say that you're in another country and there are nothing but women present and they teach you the gospel and there's no one else who can baptize you but a woman. Would you let that Christian woman baptize you? I would, but you know what? When I found a man, I'd let him baptize me. You know why? Because I don't want to play with my eternal salvation. This is a very serious thing. All right, I'm going to stop right there um, in fact, I'm stopping right where I stopped last time, and I didn't hit this this question. Um, I'll answer it real fast. Would it be wrong to play a video for our sermon on the Lord's Day? I don't believe it would. I go through much the same reasoning that you have with regard to the Great Commission. We are told to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But the Lord doesn't tell us how to go. Since he hasn't mandated how, we can go via the radio. We can go via television. We can go via social media. When it comes to preaching during the worship service, God has mandated preaching. If a sermon is played, preaching has occurred. The command of God has been met. That sermon can reprove, it can rebuke, it can exhort. The whole counsel of God can be taught. Now, if a capable person is present to teach, I'd rather go that route. But there are some cases where they do not have a capable man to do this. Under those uh, circumstances, I can't see why the authority that you see in the Great Commission would not also be applicable here. Thank you so much for your attention tonight. I really do appreciate it. It may be that we have someone here tonight who needs to obey the gospel. If you are here and you are not a child of God, you need to know to become a Christian. You need to hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. Maybe this evening you're ready to do that, and we are ready to assist you. Maybe you're a child of God, but you've been unfaithful. Maybe tonight you want to come forward and ask for the prayers of your brethren on your behalf. We would count it an honor if we could go to God and pray for you. Tonight, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, won't you come as together we stand and sing the invitation song.